0: Discretionary listener participation is advised for the following pro wrestling podcast. Hola, Kroki Achamoa means i love the stick to wrestling podcast so much i want to thank bobby vinton for writing and performing that awful song from god knows how long ago about stick to wrestling where if you give us 60 minutes perhaps indeed we'll give you a wicked good and raw bone podcast my name is john mcadam and this is stick to wrestling primarily a podcast that features classic wrestling from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Uh, before we get rolling, I want to invite you to join our Facebook group. You just have to put in search, stick to wrestling, and it comes right up. It's a cool group where we talk about uh, wrestling pictures, results, other stuff, baseball, basketball, you name it. I was going to invite you to follow me on Twitter, but like I can't log into that account. I don't know what's going on, so this might not be the week you want to do that. Before I introduce the show, before I tell you what the show is going to be about, it's about the 1997 Survivor Series. Don't turn off your listening device because we're not going to harp on the Montreal screw job. I feel like everything that has been said about that has or needs to be said has already been said. Yes, we'll touch upon it, but that is not what this podcast is going to be. It's going to be a review of the show. In total, and I want to bring on my guest. I I feel like it's interesting how I this person landed as a guest on Sick to Wrestling. Back when I was on Twitter, and hopefully I'll return, this person I saw put out a tweet, and it said, If you want to have me on your podcast, and you want to review a show, I will watch that show, and I will furiously take notes by hand on a notebook. And I'm like, okay, you're on, sir. And it turns out he's in the wrestling business. He is the ring announcer for Game Changer Wrestling. MLJ. Thank you for coming on, sir.
1: uh John McAdam, uh, thank you so much for uh, having me. Uh I mean, I mean, I, I hate to uh put a date on any of us because I guess we're all much older than we have any right uh feeling like right now but uh man like late 90s i grew up uh reading your website man like those listings that you made for all your comp tapes and everything like that that's how i learned about some a good deal of wrestling history so just being able to sit here and talk to you about a uh, very historic show is a very fun thing for me that is
0: i find that hilarious and i'll tell you why <laughs> coming in like i was like okay this guy's gonna have no idea who i am <laughs> we had no idea who the other one was but we kind of knew each other and here we are
1: yeah yeah that's the great thing about the wrestling community like especially the way it is now like it, on the surface you know we we've never met each other in real life but it feels like oh yeah i know that guy uh, i i've read his website for Years and years and years. Yeah, sure, I know that. Like, that's how, that's how it feels. Like, we don't know each other, but at the same time, we have this same, uh, common, familiar bond, uh, that brings us together. Excellent. So,
0: you work for Game Changer Wrestling. My understanding is that you're, you're the ring announcer, but can you tell us a little bit about anything else you do for that promotion?
1: Uh, yeah, now, um, you know, things have, uh, been changing a little bit over the past, uh, few months uh we've been making moves to uh become more widely accessible to more people uh so now instead of individual payment you know per show uh you know all of our events are available on uh Fight plus, you know, you can stream them live as they happen. Plus watch our old video on demand stuff. It's very similar to Peacock or the WWF network. But I say that to say this, uh, a lot of the time now on the live broadcast and on the VOD, not only will you see me in the middle of the ring, see and hear me in the middle of the ring doing ring announcing, but I'm also working with Dave Prazak uh, doing commentary, uh, for many of these events, uh, as of late. So yeah, it's great. Like I get to do, uh, the ring announcing, get that different energy. And then, uh, I'm able to just sit back and watch the wrestling that's happening, taking place right there. And, uh, being able to talk about it with Prazak, you know, and call the action with him is great. You know, it's another person. That, you know, I came into my formative years, you know, listening to in Ring of Honor and IWA Mid South and promotions like that. Now getting to work with him side by side. It, I, I have the time of my life at GCW shows, man. It's there's nothing. I'll tell like you it. what.
0: A couple of things. Number one, I love Dave Prazak. If you could put in a good word to have him as a guest sometime, I would greatly appreciate. I would love to have him on. Secondly, I'm going to make a promise. Okay, I wrote that down. Fight plus. When football season is over, maybe not even like when college football season is over, beginning mid-January, I will subscribe to Fight Plus for at least a, a, a month to check out Game Changers Wrestling. I do want to see it. So anyway, we are going to talk about the 1997 Survivor Series. Emma, I really regret not going to that show. I could have. It's a four-hour trip north to Montreal. No big deal. Spend Friday and Saturday in Montreal having fun, Sunday afternoon having fun. Go see the Survivor Series and then drive home. It was so doable, and I skipped it. And, yeah, I could have seen history firsthand. Yeah, uh, I mean,
1: I was... 10 years old, going on 11 at this point in time. So obviously living in New Jersey right outside of Atlantic city. So, uh, I didn't have, uh, that same possibility, but I did, uh, get this show on pay-per-view. I do know that for a fact. I didn't know how historic this Show is actually going to be. No,
0: I mean, nor did I. I mean, I knew there was there was stuff going on. Let's be honest. I got the observer. Um, you know, I was on the internet by this point. I mean, the, the world was changing. Uh, if you were enough of a wrestling fan to plunk down twenty-five dollars of nineteen ninety-seven money uh, to see this event, chances are you followed wrestling on the internet and you knew something that was going on with Bret Hart. And even if you didn't, uh, the story that he was leaving the WWF for WCW uh, made the newspapers in Calgary, Montreal and Toronto and God knows where else.
1: Yeah. I mean, I remember we got on the internet in my house, I got internet capabilities and a computer and everything in, I think it was October of 96. You know, and of course, as soon as you get online back then, it didn't take me very long to find the, uh, the wrestling portion of the internet. And I do recall seeing, you know, stories and rumors about Bright Hart, but I, I don't think anybody could have expected just exactly what was going to go down. And you know, they even kind of talk about it on commentary. Like, you know, they make mention early on in the show, where's McMahon? And, uh, JR is like, uh, he's pretty busy <laughs> right now. <laughs> like, so th- this had to be evolving as the actual show itself was on the air. I mean, uh, n- n- just knowing, just knowing how things are in the wrestling business, like this was definitely an ongoing situation, even after that, that light went red.
0: Yeah, um <laughs> I mean definitely um I was very surprised what happened and I I'll, I'll probably mention this again but I was I wasn't watching it live I was recording it and I was watching an NFL game uh their Sunday night game and I finished watching that and I log on to America Online if anyone remembers that dinosaur <clears throat> and I get an email from John Muse and John's like, you know, I don't know. I don't know what you. He said something about if you recorded or, or you know if did you watch the Survivor series, but if you didn't, like drop what you're doing and go watch it. I won't spoil it for you. And I'm like, oh, by the way, this is how long I've known John Muse, who's been on the show and is going to be back uh, very soon, hopefully. And I went and watched it. I, I couldn't believe what I what I saw. Didn't know what to make of it.
1: Yeah, I mean. Watching it unfold, you know, like, I knew there was gonna, you know, like like I said, like, I I knew there was something going on. But, you know, trying to figure out what exactly is going to happen, and understand the ins and outs of it, no matter if I'm online or not, like, I'm only 10 years old, watching wrestling for like, two years at this point, like, there's no real way to for me to reasonably say like, oh yeah, like that was a regular occurrence because this was I mean, it, it's really a tale of uh two events where, you know, the the first part is pretty much like you know, up until the main event it's like your your basic show, your basic wrestling event. And then it just gets yeah. crazy. <laughs> just the wheels fall there, There's
0: no way. If I, if I were 10 years old watching that, I would have been able to get my mind around it. But I open up like, yeah, we're not gonna get going to go on about the screw job. And then we turn around and do it. So stick to wrestling that was. <laughs> anyway, they opened with a really good montage of the Bret Hart versus Shawn Michaels, their whole history together. Uh, it really dated back to the 92 Survivor Series, but they kind of stayed away from that. They sort of acted like the story began WrestleMania, uh, the 1996 WrestleMania, the, the year before, and went on from there, and how Bret felt like he got screwed out of the title at that Wrestlemania and now we're finally seeing the rematch I thought they did a really good job in a very short amount of time with that
1: yeah and you know they could have they could have gone even deeper if they wanted to in the whole history between Brett and Shawn if they really wanted to I mean really where the meat on the bone is is the iron man match and everything like that wrestlemania 12 and the fallout from that and the real life issues leading into survivor series 97 but really if they wanted to they could have gone all the way back to like 1990 yeah depending on how real quote-unquote real they wanted to get with the presentation of this like you know brett you know obviously screwed out of the title it uh uh, WrestleMania 12, he's got a gripe. It went to a draw. He should be in the result of a draw. The champion retains his championship, you know, as in every, you know, wrestling uh stipulation that's ever been. But this, you know, we needed to have a winner, and Bret felt slighted by that. Now, if they wanted to, they could have put a whole different spin on that, and Shawn Michaels could have said, listen, I really won the tag team titles off of you guys way back seven years ago. But something happened and they didn't recognize the title match. Did I complain about it? Did I whine about it? Did I do anything? No. So what's the (laughs) matter with you? You know, they could have dipped into that if they really wanted to. That's a good
0: bit of booking. I like that.
1: Like, they have the footage. You know, they, they could have built it up that much if they really wanted to. But uh really, you know, like I said, the the real meat on the bones was uh you know, the fallout from WrestleMania twelve. But just to cap it from ninety six and ninety seven would be really doing it a service to the rivalry that they really did have from that, you know, tag match on Saturday night's main event or whatever it was, and then like you mentioned, Survivor Series ninety two and then like that unofficial you know, who's the best in a wrestle, World Wrestling Federation conversation that would always come up. Uh, it was always Brett and Sean. It was always those two. Especially for me growing up when I did, you know, that those were always the two wrestlers. People brought up, the, the kids brought up the most. And they, there was so much history between those two in the main event. And uh, that video package really told a great story little clips from each of their interviews over the previous months leading up to this event. You know, I, I I hadn't seen this show for so long, but watching it back and I would just hear, the like, the first couple of words of, like, a soundbite. And I knew what this soundbite would be. It sticks in your brain, like, all these years later. Like, you're a zero, my <laughs> hero, and, like... Brett calling him a degenerate and, you know, all that, like, those are just, like, lines that I can hear over and over in my head for my formative years as a wrestling fan.
0: It was, it was really something, I mean, Vince McMahon pushed the envelope with those two, I remember getting a phone call from someone who said, guess what happened at Raw last night, and they are like, you know, Brett, uh, knocked Shawn Michaels' lights out backstage. And it turned out that was a bit of an exaggeration, but uh, Bret definitely got the best of him, and they they went at it for real. Yeah. Quick aside, Mill, WrestleMania, the, the, I forget what number it is, the WrestleMania from 1996 had that Bret Hart versus Shawn Michaels Iron Man match, your honest opinion. My opinion was that it was a really good match. I've had people tell me, you know, no, they found it incredibly boring, including someone who attended it live. What did you think of it?
1: I haven't seen that match in a very, very long time. I do remember the last, the last time that I uh, attempted to watch it. I, I kind of veered on the side that it was a little bit boring in the beginning. But when it got down the stretch, I I think it really came together. I don't know if I would hold that same opinion today because, you know, it's been uh, a a very long time uh, since I've seen it. I I remember watching it live. Uh, It was actually WrestleMania 12 is actually the first pay-per-view I ever ordered in my home. So that kind of had me... Additionally, jazzed up <laughs> that day, but uh, I don't feel strongly one way or the other just because it's been so long. Okay,
0: I you know what I haven't I probably haven't seen it in ten years either. I just remember you know getting online in nineteen ninety six, being you know wow I liked the match. I didn't think it was a match of the decade candidate or anything, but I liked it. And you know people are, like throwing stuff at me. Oh, like, boo! You suck. But anyway, <laughs> uh, the opener for. Uh, Survivor Series 1997, the New Age Outlaws and the Godwins defeated the Headbangers and the Blackjacks, uh, John Hawk and Barry Windham. First thing, three of these guys would go on. They, they're opening match. They're not even a little bit big names yet, but the New Age Outlaws were going to become huge, and so was John Layfield.
1: Yeah, and uh looking at this match... I don't know if you'd be able to make that assertion. Definitely not for Bradshaw. For the New Age Outlaws, perhaps. But this is very early in the, uh, New Age Outlaws. Very early. End. Very early. They, like, I don't even think, do they have, they don't even have that they don't. name really yet. New Age Outlaws. And, uh, this is still, uh, weeks before they put, uh, the Legion of Doom through the table on Monday Night Raw. and To me, that's when the New Age Outlaws solidified themselves as a team, as a thing, as a something that I should be worried about. You, you know what I mean? Something that I should pay attention to. Up until then, it was Jesse James and Rockabilly doing something a little different. And then when they got locked up with the Legion of Doom and they started becoming like, uh, not necessarily members of degeneration X, but sort of lackeys or like the goon squad for dX that's when I was like, "Oh, wait a second, these guys got something too
0: I mean, when they first started pushing the new Age outlaws, my honest opinion and you're right they didn't even they didn't even have that name at this point. I was like, you know they are way over pushing these two, and you know, as soon as Sean left. They put after WrestleMania, they put them in that faction and pushed them to the moon, and it it, it drew, it did well. There's, you know, what am I going to say? But yeah, they, you know, they're just starting out here as a tag team, and you know, my as that run against the LOD went on, I was like, you know, you got to be kidding me. They are way over pushing these guys. One thing, this was not a good match at all, in my opinion, Yamil. Not, I mean, b- bad opener.
1: You know, as I was watching this. I wrote a couple of things here, like the, the match, I didn't think it was that good, but while I was watching it, I did note that I do miss wrestlers like the Godwins and the Blackjacks, uh, because you don't really see too many wrestlers like that in today's landscape, just big, mean, brute, brawler types big meaty guys uh you y- y don't see a lot of that type in today's uh mainstream wrestling or any other sort of wrestling so I you know i i do miss those sort of like wrestling archetypes in today's product but uh that's not to say that i thought that it was uh, necessarily a a, a great display of wrestling acumen
0: <laughs> no i i thought the most interesting part of this match was uh noticing that there was a girl in the front row with a stings crow face paint uh, i mean the blackjacks yes <laughs> montreal you gotta love the place the blackjacks were big in the early 70s that was 25 years before this event and Even as just another tag team, I mean, that just never got off the launching pad.
1: Yeah, and, you know, today, it's a much different story than it was 25 years ago. I mean, today, you know, right now, as we record on a Monday, uh, we are 25 years removed from Survivor Series 97, but that's not going to stop modern WWF from talking about Survivor Series 1997, if they want to talk about it, they will still talk about it through this moment. I say that to say this, like if you're in 1997, there is no chance in hell that they are going to broadcast something or put something over from 1972 <laughs> in the, the 1997 landscape. That is not the way that their promotion or product existed. They did not look to the past like that. But nowadays, you know, with, you know, the network and things like that and just the way you can obtain information, I suppose, it's more easily accessible. Like, yeah, they'll talk about something from 25 years ago now, whereas back then they wouldn't even bring up something that happened sometimes 25 (laughs) minutes ago.
0: (laughs) No, it was, it was, you know, strictly, Hey, this is what we're doing. And this pr- promotion pretty much has, has no history whatsoever. All right. The next match, if you thought this match was bad, where till we get to the truth commission in an Ooh. elimination match defeating, uh, DOA, which is basically Brian Adams and the, uh, the Harris twins. Uh, I mean, the, and the first two matches were pretty long matches. Well, this one was like twenty minutes, yeah. and just here's the thing: I, I I am someone who does not like to be the twenty millionth person to bash Vince Russo, but. Here's here's one of his weaknesses, and that is that, you know, as the booker or whatever he was, it's like he doesn't understand that you can't put these guys out there. None of them can work even a little bit. So what you have to do is a keep the if if you're going to have a match like this, keep it short, gimmick it up to hide the fact that all of these guys are terrible. And they, they didn't do that. They just did a straight match. Yeah,
1: they just kind of left them out there to suffer and like, you know, basis of, of comparison here, you know, the, the the first match and the second match, we're not looking at a whole lot of, uh, renowned, uh, quote unquote workers or anything like that throughout any of these, um, I guess 16, uh, wrestlers throughout the two matches. But you know, as I watched the first match, I noted how, you know, I miss guys like the Godwins and the Blackjacks. You know, I, I even, I even put down like, I would like to see the Godwins at least for one tour in all Japan pro wrestling or against the nasty boys in this era, just to see what it looks like. There's still things that I would like to see those wrestlers do. However, when I was watching Truth Commission and DOA, the first thing I wrote down before the match got started, I said, I can't think of any two more dislikable stables in 2022 eyes. Wow. Like, looking at it in modern eyes, it's like you got these militant South African segregationists against this biker gang None of that works in 2022 eyes. And even then, it wasn't palatable really like i i didn't care like I, I then went on to know jack specific made figures of all of these guys and i can't believe it like and i even i had figures of all of these guys why did i have an eight ball and <laughs> skull figure why why did i have a recon or sniper figure i don't know but they were produced
0: You were a completionist at a young age. That's not a bad thing, but the truth commission, let's talk about them for a minute. This was one of the first gimmicks that the WWF threw out there that resembled a lot of their future gimmicks that, you know, okay. They had Adam Rose, uh, maybe seven or eight years ago. His gimmick was he's in a party bus and they're having a big fun party. And he's on his way to the WWF. And my As soon as I saw that, I'm like, okay, what are they going to do with this? when they get it into the arena and the answer was they didn't know another example than mm-hmm. a ballroom dancer that's his gimmick he can do it and he can wrestle but what do you do with it once you get it to the arena who is he going to feud with what storylines are you going to have are you can have someone injure his leg so he can't dance i don't know the whole thing that sounds pretty stupid truth commission was I, as far as I can think of the original on this, like even if it gets over, what do you do with it?
1: Yeah. Where do you go? what who just, how and why, like, like what, what is their motivation against anybody and how do you make it reasonable for the, the mainstream person in America? How do you put the truth commission forward in a way to, make these people either care or think it's in good taste. (laughs) I
0: mean, yeah, either one care or in good taste. Good point. Emil and our audience, I will confess that leading up to a show like this, where I, where I, you know, review a, an an event like survivor series, 1997, I will go out and I will read reviews and uh, updates or whatever on the show, because sometimes I miss something. But in this match, they were seven eleven elimin- eliminations, and this was pointed out to me. And four of them were by the sidewalk slam. <laughs> it's like you can't, you can't you have to book better than that. But then again, the sidewalk slam yeah. is easy to execute. I don't know.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, that's that's the success rate that Dino Bravo would have been very envious of with the, with <laughs> with his side suplex or whatever they. That was his finish back in the
0: when he couldn't move. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and like it's a good
1: wrestling move, and it's a great wrestling move. The the bigger you are, but I don't know if it uh gets four separate pinfalls no. uh in in one match. As I was watching this, I wrote, "Who put this <laughs> shit together?"
0: I should. I feel like apologizing for um, asking you to watch this match. Well, I mean,
1: I I just don't know what they were thinking. Like, I don't know why they, why, like, you know, I'm looking at a match like that on paper where really the heat of the truth commission is with the Jackal. That's where the heat comes mm-hmm. from. You know, he's got, he's got huge Kurgan, the interrogator, recon and sniper, both large individuals as well. They don't talk, but here's the Jackal, smaller in stature, but with a bigger mouth and all of them put together. But in this match, they didn't treat it like that at all, really, because, you know, they, they do whatever. There's an elimination. Jackal finds himself as a legal man. There's a little bit of something, da-da-da-da-da, and then, boom, he just gets eliminated.
0: Yeah, and... He goes outside the ring in the middle of the match and starts doing commentary on, like, okay, this is supposed to be what saves this match, and it's not working.
1: No. And real realistically, like, I don't understand why they did it this way because I'm looking at the match. They didn't need to change anything, really. What this match needed to be was the sole survivors, I mean, uh, that's a a weird term, anyway. Can he have more than one sole survivor? Not really, <laughs> but that's what Survivor Series language has made me think of. The, the The winning team should have been the Truth Commission with Kurgan and Jackal together. Yeah, there was no need to eliminate Jackal and send him to the commentating area. Like the heat needed to be like Jackal coming in, doing a couple things, getting out never really getting anything on him. And then uh if you look back at the way the finish was, they could have easily done everything that they did at the end of the match uh, with the blind tag and the scoop into the fourth side slam of the evening, <laughs> or the match rather, and it wouldn't have changed or altered how the match went at all. As a matter of fact, it would have made the match yeah. better if they would have kept Jackal in there and had him be the driving force to get the heat from the crowd because like after as soon as the jackal came and went so unceremoniously i was just like what's the point of this who put this together and why don't they realize how easy of a story this really should be like it felt like just bullshit to get the jackal on the commentary and that's not where Don Callis needed to be. Like uh, he needed to be a stooge in the match. Not. No, I agree.
0: I totally agree. The most entertaining part of this match, in my opinion, were three of the signs I saw in the audience Uh, coming in third place, getting the bronze medal. The sign simply said Domino's pizza sucks. It's like, okay, (laughs) tell me something I don't know. Uh, Number two sign. Just said two words. Howard Stern. Montreal is the last yeah. place I think Howard Stern would get over. Just a different culture. But number one, the best sign I saw during this match, Undertaker is not a homo. Thank you for that information, sir.
1: Yes, I wrote that <laughs> down uh before because we got a very good look at that sign prior to the entrances of uh the teams coming out. Like it was just like like in the aisle, just dead center. And, uh, yeah, I thought that was funny, too, because, like, those signs are just like a, what what do you want to call it? like I guess like a microcosm of uh, society. Society
0: in Montreal in the 90s, yes. <laughs> just, you know, very, very simply stated, Undertaker is the, uh, no, Undertaker is not a homo. Like, you know, no explanation point, just here you go, pal.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I saw other signs out there. There was one I saw that just said, Fuck USA, that made air. Like, there was no blurring or censorship of it at all. Like, I don't even know if anybody came to take the sign away from the guy. It's certainly a... I hate to say it, but a sign of the times.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's what Vince McMahon wanted. He wanted the, the, his shows, you know, both raw and the main events to be, you know, just chaotic and, you know, anarchy. And, and he got it. Uh, you know, and obviously we're, we're in a, we're, we are in a different place today. All right, we've got Team Canada in an elimination match against Team USA, uh, Doug Furness, Phil LaFon, Davey Boy Smith, and Jim the Anvil Neidhart. Team Canada, only one guy is a Canadian, but whatever. Yeah. (laughs) Against Big Van Vader, Gold Dust, Mark Merrow, and Steve Blackman, who had debuted the Monday before doing the fan out of the crowd gimmick, running in while Team Canada was beating up on Vader. Emil, I have a real problem with that because I mean, you know, you don't want people. Oh, I can just go in the ring and, and start punching these guys because, you know, fan out of the crowd is soon going to be fan in a coma.
1: Yeah, uh I don't ever think that um it, this is a very questionable angle to run depending on how it's presented. I guess you could get away with it. But the way that it was presented here, and I remember feeling this way at the time when I was, I mean, I watched that episode of Monday Night Raw before uh, Survivor Series 97. I remember, like, watching it and like, who is this guy? Like I remember being like, this is weird. And again, I wrote down Steve Blackman's debut story is weird. <laughs> yes. Like they they just so happened to be I guess they were somewhere in a Pennsylvania area because he's a Anvil, Pennsylvania native like
0: they were in Hershey.
1: Yeah, okay, which is not too far from Anvil. Uh So, you know, I remember them, like, putting that over, and I'm like, what, what is this? And then, like, here comes Steve Blackman, and he pulls all these uh quote-unquote Canadians off of Vader, and he beats up all these people, but then they get the advantage of him. Great. But then you see the, the visual of Vader like, on top of this guy, like, protecting him, like, yes. shielding him from the blows. And it's like, wow, look at the compassion (laughs) of Big Van Vader. Like, that's never been his M.O. Like, I don't know. It just seemed. And and then they said, what did they say on commentary, like, leading up to the match, that, like, Vader paid Steve Blackman's bail. Fuck.
0: I missed that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, they said that, like, Vader paid his bail, and he, like, went to Commissioner Slaughter to, like, put him in the match or something like that. Like, that is so insane to me because, like, it's really, like, it's the same thing as, like, if somebody ran onto the parquet at the Boston Garden and was like, yeah, Larry, pass it to me. I'm going to shoot a (laughs) three-pointer. And then Larry Burgess passes on the ball and he makes the shot. And they're like, yeah, we need to sign this guy like that would never happen. It's so insane to me. Like, and plus they also went to the lengths of like explaining how it might work in real life and that is still so like ridiculous.
0: It really was. You know, I was watching this and you know, I knew who Steve Blackman was. I knew him from Calgary from like, you know, 87, 88 and he missed a bunch of spots. And I was just like, you know, Okay, how long has this guy been in the business? And you know, he's screwing up. So I go check on Wiki, and it turns out. Listen to this, Blackman. I, I did not know this. Blackman contracted malaria and dysentery while wrestling in South Africa in nineteen eighty nine, and was essentially bedridden for two years. I mean, you know, bedridden for two years not what I want. And it just shows you, no, like you know, maybe. I don't like this particular wrestler from the eighties or nineties. You know, you and L, the audience might like him, but you know, guys really had to make sacrifices to get over in the business back in the day. And you know, this guy goes on the wrong trip and he's bedridden with malaria for two years.
1: Yeah. And you know, it's, it's, it's so, especially at that time period because. Of course like you know the territories are all dying out uh Steve Blackman what he wrestled in Calgary Stampede uh I had no idea about that at the time uh I just thought it was like oh who's this guy like whatever like you know obviously once even at that point in time to a a 10-year-old who who had been online for about a year at that point in time like even to me at that point in time I'm like People don't come out at the crowd and know how to do this kind of stuff. Like, I like I had like I knew he wasn't just a fan, you know. Like, civilians don't move like professional no, wrestlers, and they don't fight like professional wrest. You know, they, it's a certain thing that only exists within its own universe. And as soon as somebody like steps into it and acting that way, like it, it's pretty clear to tell that they, they know what they're yeah. doing. But, like, I yeah, I had no idea that he had a history at all. But, you know, looking back at that time, with with the territories drying up, you kind of had to go, you know, wherever would offer you, like, a tour or, you know, significant money or whatever because you didn't really know where the business was going to wind up at that point in time. I mean, I guess what you had, WWF, NWA.
0: That's about it. Stampede. Yeah, Memphis, and world-class? Well, by the time we got to the late 80s, the only place you were making any money was the WWF, the NWA, and the two Japan promotion. So, you go on a tour like that so you can put it on your resume and hopefully get hired somewhere.
1: Yeah, and and then on one of those tours, you never... Like, international tours like that, you never know who's also going to be booked on that tour. You wrestle, you know, uh, a wrestler that... Wrestles for another office, you know, in some other country and then you have a good match with them. They put you over. They bring you in to to that, you you know, like you kind of just have to, it's like today's independent wrestling scene where, you know, uh, you get when you're trying to get your name out there, you just take bookings from wherever you can just to get your name out there. But like that comeback. That Steve Blackman made, no matter how good he was in the ring or not, like that's a hell of a comeback for a person just to like be bedridden for two years and some sort of malaria strain, and still be able to come back into being a uh, an active physical athlete. That's uh, something to be very proud of. No matter no matter how your output is. after that it doesn't matter no i agree
0: with you and he looked like he was in tremendous shape and he had great muscularity you know just six years later, so you know good for him i mean it's one of those things like you know Steve Blackman to me was always like, ah, he was okay in Stampede and he kind of sucked in the WWF. Then you hear, I read about, you know, him getting through that. And it's just like, you know, I'm, I'm very impressed by that. This match seems like more of a, sh- more than anything, a showcase of Goldust's most recent turn. Um, I did watch the Go Away yes. Raw before this, the one that, you know, took place six days earlier. And they did this weird angle where they're sitting there interviewing Marlena and Goldust, and she's all happy that they're back together after the Brian Pillman thing and we're a family again. And he just all of a sudden turns on her and says, you know, This sucks. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be in this family anymore. And she's crying. It was a tough segment to get to. And now he's back to being gold dust with the words F you written on his face forever unchained. Uh And the the match, Mm. this match was just um, it existed more to get his turn over than anything else. And things were going to get really bizarre with Dustin Runnels pretty soon. Yeah,
1: that's that's certainly one way to put it. Looking at this team, that uh, both teams are rather slapped together. Uh granted, I know Team Canada, quote unquote, has like the loose uh Heart Foundation affiliation even though Burnace and LaFon were never really a part of that outfit technically. But like the that American team was just like uh, I mean it's your debut vehicle for Steve Blackman it's your way to get into the Goldust Vader program which you know they had a match at uh, Royal Rumble 98 which features one of the best <laughs> finishes of all time at Luna Vashan Scorpion tailing off of that Vader bomb so what you had you had Vader you had uh Steve Blackman you had, uh, Goldust, and, uh, who, who else was out there?
0: It was Mark Marrow, who, I, I was always confounded yeah. by his WWF push.
1: That'll tell you, cause like, I just, I just watched this match mere hours ago, and, uh, I, I mean, I just wrote for a header, America versus Canada. I didn't even remember Mark Merrow was in the match. Like, he is so forgettable. I'm trying to figure out, like, is there a different fourth person that they could have put in there? Like it's 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 like the most not cohesive.
0: No, team. It, it, I think they just wanted to get him on the show.
1: Yeah, they, like they were like, "Oh, we got to get Mark." Well, more so, Sable. Than oh, two
0: loud Sable chants during the match. Yes, they wanted Sable
1: on the show. I don't think they gave a shit what Mark Marrow. You're was probably doing, right, and I think that's evident that they just threw him there. Like, okay, you can be the third most well, actually, on the, the babyface side, Mark Marrow is like the fourth important thing in that match behind Vader Goldust thing, Steve Blackman debut, Sable just being visible. At the end of all that, then it's Mark Marrow. And by that point in time, well, what are you gonna do? And what he does do, and I made note of this, that was probably the ugliest marrow salt I ever see saw him hit on Doug Furnace. Like I don't know if like Doug Furnace just doesn't know how to catch a moon salt or what happened there, but it was it was ugly. I did not like that one at all. Like the,
0: yeah. You know, one last thing about you know what they probably had marijuana. You know, a to get Sable on the on the show, but B they probably wanted marrow on the show to justify the contract they gave him. They gave him a decent deal to move out of WCW and into WWF. And they, like I said, they probably needed to justify it. One last thought on this uh, match. It's not really on the match. Doug Furness and Phil LaFon were considered kind of a big acquisition by the WWF when they got them. And man, did they bomb in the WWF. And I'm not just blaming them that, you know, it, they didn't fit, and the WWF didn't know how to use them.
1: I'll just put it like this. I mean, they made and manufactured Truth Commission figures, which I owned, but they never made and manufactured Furniss and Lafon figures. Like, damn,
0: Truth Commission got toys <laughs> before y'all? And they were there for like, like a year and a half.
1: Yeah, they, 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 Furniss and Lafon were there before the Truth Commission, and they were there after the Truth Commission, and they still never got figures where the Truth Commission did. And it's just like, damn. Like, I, I remember, I was a weird kid. Like, I wanted my Furnace and LaFont toys. <laughs> like, the first time I saw Doug Furnace do a dropkick, I was like, yeah, awesome. Phil LaFon pulling out crazy suplexes. Yeah, this guy, these guys are great. I love them. But, like, I don't really think that the WWF was the place for them. I think Furnace and LaFon. Uh, get more over and more notoriety if they go to WCW instead. But, uh, I don't know. Uh, another thing that came out of this match for me, uh, I don't know if I'm a glutton for punishment or what, but I want to see a full length Vader versus Jim Neidhart match from around this time. I think, I think that would be an interesting thing to look at. They had a, they had a, a little back and forth in this match. And I was like, you know what? I wouldn't mind seeing that for about five and a half more I minutes.
0: I mean, it sounds like kind of a, a raw filler match, but I wouldn't turn it off. <laughs> um- oh, exactly.
1: Like, I, I don't mean in terms of like, uh, you know, I want to see them open a pay-per-view for 18 minutes, but you know, in, in the style of, a uh, just a good match that they would put on TV to eat up seven or eight minutes. Yeah. I think that would be a fun match to watch. I don't know. I I feel like Neidhart was a little bit motivated against Vader than he typically was at this point in time.
0: No, I I hear what you're saying. You know, the one guy I felt bad for uh, after the Bret Hart incident was Jim Neidhart because, you know, he wanted to be, be let go. And in order for that to happen, they had to embarrass him on Monday Night Raw like two or three weeks later. But anyway, Moving on, this wasn't a match. They had a contest for something called a Super Supper with a WWF contestant where they called the person at home live on the show. Yeah, I had completely forgotten about this. But as I'm rewatching the event, I'm just like, oh, no, these never go well. Why are they still doing this? This always flops miserably and whoever it was that they got on the phone couldn't have been better to the point where i'm thinking maybe she was a plant
1: yeah yeah especially the way that uh jerry lawler played off of that conversation like it felt a little bit too yes. perfect but that said I, I, it was it was a good gag you know if it was planned great gag if it wasn't planned Well, I mean, kudos to Jerry Lawler, you know, because if that was a shoot, you know, Lawler, through his facial reactions, carries that segment, just working with whatever is happening at that point in time. I
0: mean... my guess is that it wasn't, my guess is that it wasn't a, uh, a work. They just got really lucky this time. <laughs> I mean, they had done that three or four times previously and it was just like dead air in the middle of a pay-per-view.
1: Yeah. I remember like the first in your house, they gave away the house through like the phone number thing. Oh, and uh summer slam just three months prior they had the deal with the, um, what was it, a casket that was filled with a million dollars or something like that. And you had to have like, oh, there was some sort of sweepstakes or something with that.
0: They they had it set up where there was no way that million dollars was given away. Uh, but anyway, now we finally have what I think is a good and interesting match it's kane who is a very new character at this point uh defeating mankind uh he had he had just given up his dude love gimmick to go back to being the the vicious mankind i thought it was a good match mick foley took some incredible bumps In this match, I mean, he did the elbow from the apron, which, you know, can't be comfortable. He gets hit in the face with the ring stairs, something I would never let someone do to me. He takes a bump from the top rope, does a flip and lands on the concrete floor on his back. And no one even talks about it anymore because Hell in the Cell was so crazy. But I mean, he was phenomenal on this night.
1: Yeah, I, I forgot just how good uh this match was. I mean, and this is was this like the first match that Kane had as a
0: character on television? I believe it was. I think he just beat guys up randomly before this.
1: Yeah, I think that's like, you know, they, it would be like a slap together match. It would be like a WCW nitro match, you know, like, uh, where it's just like two random people against each other, which WWF very rarely did, but it would be like a slap together match. And then like a minute and a half later, like the lights would go off or turn red and here comes Kane if it even took that long. It was interesting at that point in time, just seeing what Kane would do. I kind of like the mood lighting. It's a little hokey, but it's pretty cool at the same time. Different. I'm like, let's
0: talk about that. They had a crazy storyline by pro wrestling standards in 1997 coming into this. You've got The Undertaker, who's long lost thought to be dead brother Kane is really alive and he's being controlled by Paul Bearer and he's kind of a Jason from Friday the 13th character and you have the red lighting in the match which is something that had never never been done before I knew a lot of people in 1997 who were really upset by this they were like you know no this goes way outside the boundaries of how i define pro wrestling and it's wrong and it's stupid and all that and and my take by this point was pro wrestling what is pro wrestling it is self defining you can't just say no this isn't pro wrestling i did it myself in 1984 when tuesday night titans debuted i was like this is not wrestling so that was my moment but i i knew a lot of people who were really upset over that character and that storyline and i liked it yeah
1: i i thought it was uh awesome like i remember like the next day at school, after Kane debuted at the Hell in a Cell, or at Bad Blood during the Hell in a Cell match, and like, like all my classmates are talking about how cool Kane was, and like how cool this new guy is, and yeah, it 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 definitely worked at least in my little uh, environment. Like all the all the kids in my school were all about Kane. You know, they they thought he was, they thought he was cool. They, they liked the lighting. They liked the look. They liked the... The entrance music. Yeah, the music. And, you know, I thought it was cool because at that point in time, like 97, like Undertaker had moved away from like the zombie stuff a bit. Like he wasn't doing the sit up every time he was like getting up from his back off of the mat. Anymore, like he he wasn't doing that as like every time, but like when Kane like would come in and would do that, I thought, I was like, Oh, that's so cool. Like I, I thought that was like the coolest touch that like Kane was acting the way that like original Undertaker would. Good point. But like with a little bit, it was a little more, there was like a little bit more snap to it.
0: It was a lot more edgy, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, yeah. It was, like, it was a little scarier, a little spookier. Like, there was more snap to it, I think. Because I, I think, like, I'm just, like, trying to think of this now, like, off the top of my head, but, like, I think the thing that made the, the setup for The Undertaker to work is the fact that he did it slowly and methodically and It was creepy and weird and spooky like that. But when Kane would do it, he did it a little bit quicker and it gave off a different vibe. It was like, it made me feel like Kane was more of a serial killer or something like that. Like he was just a little bit more heinous, a little bit more violent or something. I don't, I don't know what it was, but just in the speed of the setup and how, and not only that, but he Would do the sit up and then quickly turn his head, yes, yeah. He would like snap his head over to like where whoever just did something to him was. Like, I was like, oh man, that's like it's it's the same thing but executed ever so slightly different. That made it feel so much of a different aspect. To you
0: me. know, I remember him debuting. You know, they were talking about Kane on TV, how Undertaker has this long lost brother, and then they have that Hell in a Cell match with Undertaker versus Shawn Michaels, which to me gets consideration for match of the decade. It was that good and it was so ahead of its time and you've got this like five plus star match. It's nearing its end and all of a sudden there's this like loud explosion and that music starts playing and this guy in this red suit shows up and he rips the the door off the cage while Jim Ross is screaming, that's got to be Kane and I thought it was fantastic i you know you might have been ten i was thirty two yeah. and I loved it but one last thing about this match i mean mick Foley pretty much he did an absolutely clean job I, I should i should say mankind did a very clean job and undertaker was on offense most of the match not undertaker but kane you know, pretty much mopped the floor with yeah. him and it tells you something about wrestling because people have short memories did it hurt mankind no it didn't it it didn't matter at the end of the day and you know this this talk that's always been there that you know the, these wrestlers they need to protect them so you're going to bury him doing something like that not always and clearly not in this case
1: yeah a- absolutely you know a-, a lot of times people get hung up on the result of one match if the result of one match if Mankind losing the cane just totally killed off mankind. Well, then you didn't really have much of mankind to begin no. with, did you? If one loss just totally takes you out of the game, like it's wrestling. Okay, so you lost. Come back and do something better next time. Like you know, like use that as a tool. Like it's fine. Like, and that's the thing. A lot of these guys are like, oh, I I can't do this. My character wouldn't do that. What do you mean? What do you mean by that? Like, there's a way in order... What, your character doesn't lose? What are you, five? <laughs> Come on. Yeah. Like, let's figure out a way to make this happen and make it work. Like, you know, it, it's funny that I'm saying, you know, let's find a way to make that happen as I'm literally looking at the main event. Yeah, <laughs> really. The you know, they found a way to make it work. But, like... A lot of times I, I, you'll hear that and it's like, if, if they would have lost there, would have, if that happened just one thing and it derails you so far, then you really didn't have no. much. At the, at the, at the no, start you, I, I
0: I completely agree. There was a match maybe 10 years ago between Brock Lesnar and John Cena, and Lesnar absolutely ragdolled Cena the entire match. And guess what? It didn't hurt John Cena. Next we have – I thought this was crazy. I had completely forgotten about this. They have a deal where if you purchase the Survivor Series – and you mail in a copy of your cable bill to the WWF, proving that you have in fact purchased it, they would send you a dog tag, uh, a WWF dog tag. And I, again, had completely forgotten about this, but my God, what I would do to go back 25 years ago and mail in a copy of my cable bill and get one of these and either still have it or sell it for millions on eBay. I mean, really a collector's item.
1: Yeah, and I'm a I'm an only child and wrestling was my passion still is. I got good marks in school, very good grades, honor roll. So I say that to say this, I was very lucky and privileged to have been able to order pay-per-views almost on a monthly basis, not from both companies or from all three companies. Honestly, I was mostly purchasing WCW oh, pay-per-views. Wow. Yeah, I, I was I was more of a WCW guy. I I liked WCW a lot, but uh I did purchase uh Survivor Series 97 on pay-per-view. And I think it was it was the first WWF pay-per-view I think I had ordered since uh WrestleMania that year. As much as I love WCW, I couldn't justify ordering uncensored over WrestleMania. Ah, You you know, you just kind of got to see WrestleMania, even though WrestleMania 13 was probably not as good as uncensored 97. And you know what? I I feel pretty good just making that assertion after not seeing those shows for a while. That feels like a pretty safe bet, (laughs) but all that said, you know, having purchased the, you know, monthly pay per view, I cannot believe that I didn't hassle my parents to send in a copy of the cable bill to one of the companies every month because I should have the dog tags. (laughs) I should have the inflatable King of the Ring 97 chair or whatever it was or the koozies that they would give out, whatever it was. Like I bothered my parents for everything else wrestling, whether it was magazines, action figures, trading cards, I mean, when WCW was putting out the wrestler-branded, like, matchbox cars or whatever, like, yeah, I would collect those, too, because they had wrestlers on it. I had wrestling everything. But I never sent in the cable bill to get the (laughs) free gift. And, like, every time I go back and look at things like that, it's like, man, I could have had that cool thing. For, like,
0: 29 cents. For free. Cost of a stamp. Yeah. Self-addressed stamped envelope, man. Next, we have Vince McMahon doing an interview. And, Emil, this is something I want to talk about. History has kind of been re- rewritten that Vince McMahon turned heel because of 1997 Survivor Series where you know, Bret Hart kind of put him in that position. If you were watching the Raws previous to this, especially the one right before, it is obvious that Vince McMahon is turning heel, Okay. I, at the time, I was kind of like, this is weird. They can't turn the owner of the company, can they? Oh, yes, they can. Um, but, you know, looking back, it was obvious. And now they're doing an interview with Vince backstage at this time, and once again, he makes it obvious that it's already in the bank. He is turning heel.
1: Yeah, and I think, I honestly think the, the stage got set for the McMahon heel turn, like, a couple months before that, like, uh, when he got stunned by uh Austin in Madison Square Garden, Vince was acting kind of, I feel like he was acting a little yeah. heelish at that point in time, which, you know, like just like kind of like egging Austin on or whatever. And, you know, I, at that point, Austin was stunning everybody because how he remained over. But I, I remember him stunning Vince was like a different thing, especially in Madison oh, yeah. Square Garden. And I think that was... Kind of like perhaps an impetus, you know, like maybe Vince realized, oh shit, like I could get a reaction from getting stunned like this. Cause like Vince never got touched. Like he took that what what he took that chair shot during the Ric Flair, Roddy Piper thing, like on Superstars. That was ninety one
0: 91, and that was absolutely, you know, just wow what an angle they actually got Vince McMahon involved I mean he he did something with the a manager of the year in 1977 but that's back when he was just the announcer by 91 we all knew he was way more than just an announcer but you know yeah like I said I mean he on the raw before he's in the ring with Steve Austin and he's got the the Stooges in the ring with him and he's like keep keep him away from me keep him away and it's like you know that's heelish Yep, absolutely. Doing the chicken shit heel manager routine. Next up, we have Ken Shamrock, Ahmed Johnson, and the Legion of Doom against the Nation of Domination, which is Ron Simmons, Charles Wright, AC Connor, and The Rock, Dwayne Johnson. This felt like a little bit of a coming out party for two people. Number one, Rocky Maivia, and uh, number two, Ken Shamrock. Uh, Maivia debuted the previous Survivor series. And we heard all the stories coming out of Memphis that Rocky Johnson's kid is going to be a no-questions-asked superstar. And they brought him in. They used him all wrong. They didn't learn from, you know, Don't Lex Luger, in my opinion, failed in 93 because they pushed him as this candy-ass baby face. And here they are again, four years later, three years later, doing the same thing to Rocky Johnson's kid. They learned their lesson. They turned him heel. The only heat in this match really was the Rocky sucks chant. I mean, it wasn't a bad match, but it felt like the crowd had decided that this is something they just had to sit through before we get to Owen and Bret Hart's matches.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I got that vibe too a bit, but that said, even though it was sort of a, like a, like a lame duck sort of match, I, I quite liked it. Wasn't it wasn't a bad actually. match. The very beginning, I love any time that somebody gives, uh, Road Warrior Hawk a pile driver and he's like, nope. <laughs> uh, there, there was a time where D'Lo gave him a pile driver. And, uh, d was like gloating about it. Uh, Hawk pops right back up and grabs d for the hangman's neck breaker. I thought that was super cool. I like it when like, like, cause like the pile driver has never hurt Road Warrior Hawk ever. Like he popped up from Jerry Lawler's pile driver. You know, I, I like it when that exists. You know, you know what I mean? Like, like moves that just don't work on specific wrestlers or, uh, moves that make specific wrestlers act specific ways, like Rick Rude getting an atomic <laughs> drop. Or, or like Greg Valentine even taking the atomic drop. Like there's very unique ways that they would do that. And I, I thought, like, the the pile driver cell, <laughs> for lack of a better word, the, the pile driver reaction from Road Warrior Hawk is always fun for me. I also really like the, there was a sequence in there between, uh, Ken Shamrock and Kama Mustafa that I really liked, it, like, cause it harkened back to, uh, the days of the supreme fighting machine. You know, he was able to bring out some of his, like, little, uh, little martial arts training was Charles Wright. I, I always liked that cause, like, I first got into wrestling in 1995, and, like, not a lot of people are going to, like, go to bat for 1995. WWF is, like, the best thing ever. But the wrestling you grew like, your first wrestling is always your favorite wrestling. I feel like that's, like, a thing. So, like, comma the Supreme Fighting Machine, was, like, one of my first favorites because... He was just one of the first guys that I saw, and I thought he was cool. He did cool kicks and stuff like that. So I I thought
0: it was neat to see him tangle with Ken Shamrock like that. I have a book. It's called When It Was Real, and it was written by uh, Nikita Brezhnikov. Is that a Crowbar Press book? Yes, it is. That's where I got it. And he did a year-by-year breakdown of every year in the WWF in the 1970s, and I went to 1976 and, you know, the first thing he says was, yeah, this year was really lame, worst of the seventies. And I was like, wow, that was my year that I first fell in love with it. So of course I like 1976. So I can totally relate, you know, that's the year you fall in love with wrestling is, is always going to be at least one of your favorites. Um, Yeah, I thought this was a good match, but there was one thing we talked about very recently on stick to wrestling starcade 1987, uh, which was almost exactly 10 years before this event. And we were talking about how difficult it was to book the Road Warriors as challengers to Tully Blanchard and Arn Anderson because once you put the belt on the Road Warriors, they are not returning the favor. And I mean, they were just you know plain and simple. We do not do jobs, and now not only are they doing jobs, but it's almost like they're there to put other people over. The New Age Outlaws come out and they attack Road Warrior Animal. They, they mock the Road Warriors. I mean, it was really symbolic that things were changing. And the Road Warriors, you know, right around this time, I was looking at them and I'd always seen them as top notch superstars until right around this point. It's like these guys are kind of mm-hmm. a, a relic from the 80s
1: it it's one of those things where you know we talked about it with uh mankind and kane where i was talking about like you know if if one match decision or one match outcome you know really changes your trajectory uh then you know what yeah. you're really doing with the legion of doom the road warriors it was over the course of time where it wasn't just they lost once or they lost twice but you know, it, it, they're in a position here where they are fodder in an elimination match, well pretty much. Uh, gradually, enough had been chipped away from them that it didn't really even feel monumental when uh Hawk, an animal, got eliminated from the the matchup. Yeah. You know what I mean? It didn't like it, it didn't feel like, yeah. oh my god, I can't believe I just saw Hawk get
0: pinned. It definitely felt like these guys were in the twilight of their careers and and only 14, 15 years in, which is not a lot in pro wrestling. And it it turned out, yeah, it was the twilight of their careers. Now we get to the two matches that we all really want to see. Uh, Steve Austin versus Owen Hart for the Intercontinental Championship. Austin has wrestled just a handful of matches since SummerSlam, which was three months earlier where he suffered a legit bad back and neck injury while getting pile driven incorrectly by Owen Hart. Owen Hart had just suffered a concussion. So, you know, they just kind of, kind of rolled this out there and did what they could. The match was over in four minutes. Owen brings Team Canada to the ring with him. All four guys, and Austin just stuns everybody, including Owen, and and leaves them for dead. Owen Hart was a riot. He wears an Owen three sixteen shirt to the ring, and in the back it says, "I just broke your neck." That's comedy.
1: Yeah, uh, I always, I always wanted that <laughs> shirt, but like they never really sold it like that. I mean, which makes sense because it is kind of in poor taste. I don't remember that being sold. I don't remember it either. And they probably could have made they could have made a lot of money off of that. Uh,
0: possibly, but like you said, it's kind of the anti face t-shirt. But yeah, hey, Apple wants this shirt. If you're listening to this, find him on Twitter and get him one. It's Canada, they love the hearts, and a lot of the fans were on Austin's side, but there was a loud break-his-neck chant in the middle of the match, and they did the pile-driver spot a couple of times where Owen was trying to pile-drive Austin again, and of course, you know, Owen got body-flipped over it. Overall, for what it was, it was a short match. It needed to be short because of the physical condition of both guys, but for what it was, I thought it was a good match, Emil.
1: You know, I I feel like over time, especially um during like recaps and stuff that I would see over the years, people would talk about how like the short length of the match uh really prohibited it from being a uh a, a good match, but length and quality are not the same no. at all. And like you said, this match needed to be on the short side because of the physical capacity of steve austin and uh it wasn't anything more than it needed to be because realistically uh this is not only is it like the redemption thing but it's also getting back on the right path you know they they need they were like okay steve is good to go we need to get back on track with him in the intercontinental title because i i think i think the plan was always for Austin and the rock to go at it over the Intercontinental title at that point in time to elevate everything involved, Austin, The Rock, and the Intercontinental title in itself. But I think perhaps uh, there was a little bit of a roadblock put in there with the, with the whole injury thing happening, and I think they just made that shift, and they said, you know, we got to get this back on Austin because after that, like, Austin really didn't cross paths with Owen ever again. And I don't blame Austin for that, because if he didn't want to work with Owen after that accident, I don't blame him. Because I always heard that, that Steve Austin was like, Uh, no, I don't think that we should do it that way. And Owen did it anyway.
0: Owen, yeah. Steve Austin never forgave Owen for what happened. I mean, Austin was saying that, you know, Owen called him once after the pile driver to see if he was okay. And Steve was like, you know, if I did that to someone, I'd be calling him every day. He thought Owen Hart was reckless with that pile driver. And damn, I mean, he he dropped him right on his head with, you know, I mean, like a, a dart just straight down. And, you know, yeah. I mean, what can I say? I I think at some point I would have forgiven Owen Hart. Uh, you know, he apologized. I would have accepted that was an accident. But then again, it's not my neck and back. I mean, Austin probably should not have been wrestling this match. He was not giving... Good news by his specialist, But you got to remember, Austin in 1989, 1990, you know, had a tiny little apartment in Dallas and talking about he was talking about how he was eating raw potatoes for meals because he was that broke. And now he's finally, after all these years, seeing gigantic money. And it's hard to turn that down.
1: Yeah, especially at that time, because even still in 90s, 96, 97, like, you don't have the luxury of a huge guaranteed contract like you do today. Like, you know, knock on wood that, you know, it doesn't happen, Mm -hmm. right? But say, for example, Seth Rollins, right? The top guy in the company. Something goes wrong and Mm -hmm. he gets hurt and he's put on the shelf. Well... He's still able to make money through, on his contract and every, through his downside guarantee and everything like that. But even in 96, 97, you still had to make the towns to get the payoffs. These guys didn't have, you know, million dollar guarantee contracts no. back then. And you know what? Cash is a hell of a motivator, especially when you're on such a rise like Steve Austin was at that time, like it was very risky that he came back into the ring. But looking back, all told, like he made the right decision. I mean, would he have had a perhaps more lengthy career if he didn't come back so quickly? Probably. But would he have gotten as over as quickly with as much staying power? I don't know.
0: You got to strike when the iron's hot. Exactly. I mean, oh, you know, Austin made so much money, not only from making the towns, but you know, the, the merch was off the, the merchandise was off the charts. Now, main event, Shawn Michaels challenging Bret Hart for the WWF championship. This match had a big fight. Feel to me. It had that in 97. It felt like that again when I rewatched this. A little bit of background. I mean, these guys did not trust each other. Sean would not get in the ring, I mean, for months and months against either Brett or Owen Hart because he was afraid that they might try to hurt him. Brett didn't trust Sean uh for a number of reasons. He didn't trust that, you know, Sean flat out told him, no, I'm not going to do a job for you ever. And Brett's question, well, why would I ever do a job for you? So things were tense between these two. As I mentioned, they had a dressing room fist fight at one point. And Lawler comes out before the match and he's like, well, both of these guys refuse to lose. I was like, oh, man. that That's so
1: good. Like, I love stuff like that. Like, as a commentator, ring announcer, voice talent, whatever. Whenever I'm able to make a comment that works in the realm of what we are presenting, but also works if you know who these people are in real life, you know, I, I love... Moments like that where you're able to slip in a comment like that. And that's a very slick, slick sentence there from uh, Jerry Lawler. You know, in the confines of what is being presented to us on the screen, yeah, both guys do refuse to lose. You know, that's something that you say about tough competitors all the time. Yeah, I refuse to lose. But when you peel everything back, like, yeah, uh, they really are... Not wanting to do this no. at all in real life. It's great.
0: Yeah. You'll hear that like during a football game. Both of these teams refused to lose, but it meant a little something else here. What did JR say? Oh, you'll, you'll never see this match again. And, you know, it wasn't fi- officially on WWF TV that Brett was leaving, but there's another foreshadowing. And again, they, you know, before I get into the match, I mean, there's a sign in the crowd. Brett, why wait? Leave now. And then there's a Brett sold out chant, which is ridiculous.
1: Yeah. Especially in Canada, too. Like, you would figure, like, they would give Brett a break or at least, like, understand. Like, if, if you know, how can I put this? Like, if you're already, like, so inside that you know Brett
0: is leaving.
1: How could you feel that it's him
0: selling out? Yeah. I mean, that was the big chant in the 90s anyway when someone left ECW. Yeah.
1: But like, it just, just like to look at it realistically, like, could anybody really have actually felt that way? Cause like Brett, from, from what I have understood, like Brett did not want to leave.
0: No, Vince pushed him out.
1: Yeah, like Vince was basically the one that was like, no, I can't pay you. Go, go look to see what you can get. Whereas I feel like Brett would have been happy to renegotiate or maybe not happy, but he would have been, he would have been open to like, okay, instead of this, because remember Brett Hart was given not a, three-year deal, not a five-year deal, not a 10-year deal. He had a 20-year deal. 20! that That's a huge contract. Like, I, I feel like if Brett's willing to initially sign a contract saying, yeah, I'm with you guys for 20 years, I feel like he'd be willing to make concessions to stick around if it was... The right thing for him to do. It was the right thing for business. You know what I mean? Yeah,
0: I mean, it, well, the the deal, the contract was set up so that instead of Brett getting three million dollars a year for three years or whatever it was, he, he was getting a million dollars a year, but he was going to be getting it until he was like fifty eight years old. So it was almost like completely yeah. backloaded. And frankly, I don't understand why Brett would. You know money I don't understand why Brett would sign a contract like that because money now is always better than money later, especially if you know you're looking at the possibility frankly when that contract was signed in nineteen ninety six of the w w f going out of business, and guess what you don't get your twenty year deal you get whatever's left of the assets of the w w f and you're getting pennies on the dollar. But anyway, I, I just always thought that was ridiculous. This was a really good match. It was probably not as good as I remembered it. I remembered it being like eh, maybe four and a quarter, four and a half stars. It was more like three and a half, three and three quarters. But it was really good, a good brawl. And I'll tell you what, not everyone has good things to say about Shawn Michaels for good reasons but at the same time i want to give sean credit he's in montreal he's got heat to the point where people are ready to jump the rail and kill him and yet he's willing to brawl with, with brett in the crowd uh yeah i think they they went
1: out into the crowd a couple of times they did yeah, didn't they so like he was really tempting yes. fate. <laughs> you know like Doing it once is, uh, ballsy enough, but, uh, they went out there two or three times, uh, two times in the crowd and then once, like, up the aisle way, up the aisle way and back down. But yeah, like, uh, that, that's a great point, uh, especially the, the way that Sean was carrying himself on the way to the ring. Like, he was like, uh, picking his nose with the flag, humping it. Like, sticking it down his pants. Like, he was riling those, riling those people up pretty seriously. And, you know, he didn't even need to do all that to rile those people up. He just had uh that heat to begin with. One thing before we start talking about the match itself too much, uh, to get back to your point that you made initially when you first uh, brought up this main event is... Yes, very, very, very big match feel. I don't ever remember a time before this match where, I, I mean, on a non, like, Madison Square Garden show, like, I mean, like a, like a big, like, production here, where they follow the wrestlers walking from their dressing room to the gorilla yeah. position through the curtain. I don't recall that ever happening on wwf before this match and little stuff like that presentation things like that where where you as a viewer feel like you are seeing something that you're not supposed to see that really puts it over the top that puts the match like no matter what happened leading into the the video packages what you what you hear what you see on tv it's already positioned to be a big match, but just that little additional thing production wise really elevates what is about to happen. I feel like,
0: yeah, that was an excellent production perk and both guys did a really good job. Like they were both very confident yet. You could still see that they both had a little bit of butterflies. Uh You had, uh, uh, Sean walking with China and Rick Rude and Triple H and people forget what China was, how novel she was in 1997. I mean, you, you looked at her on TV. Oh my God. Where did they get her? And then you've got Brett backstage with the Heart Foundation walking to the ring and it, it felt really realistic. I, I agree with you there.
1: Not only just the Heart Foundation, but, uh, was it? It was Blade. Yeah, his his young son was following behind with a Canadian flag, and it's just like I don't know whose call it was to have Blade coming down. Well, not in the aisle way, but like through the corridors. But that was again such a, a subtle touch because it's not just it's not just these wrestlers. It's you know he's he's got his son there too. Like it's it it's more real. It, it 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 all of that put together and that that whole setup makes everything feels so much more real.
0: Yeah. Um. So anyway, I I talked a little bit earlier earlier about this. John Muse emailed me. He's like, "You got to see what happened." And I looked, and I I didn't know what to make of the finish at the time. I mean, obviously, we were all taken aback. You know, is this a work? Is this not a work? What's going on? But I mean, overall, I mean, it, it was a really good match. Do you have any any thoughts on the match itself, Emil? Yeah,
1: um, I, I'm actually a little bit uh, different from you. How uh, how how you stated it, like like you remember it being a uh, like a little bit better on on its uh, most recent viewing. I, on the other hand, like. I didn't remember much of the match itself. I remember it was good. I remember it was like, uh, a brawl, but like watching it back now, like I haven't seen the match in full in probably 20 years. Oh wow. Yeah. Like it's, it's, it's been a while since I revisited this show and that's what, that's why I was so happy I jumped at the chance to do this specific one. It gave me a reason to watch an iconic event. But as I was watching it, I was like, oh, this is a little bit better than I remember it being, because really, I only remember, I remember brawling and the finish. I didn't remember that beautiful yet absolutely gnarly looking vertical suplex Bret Hart gave Shawn Michaels in the the aisleway. Oh, that looked so... It was a beautiful looking suplex, but you could tell that sucked so hard oh, yeah. to take. It was a hard suplex. It, it, it was the same suplex Brett would have done in the ring. Well, now that I say that, those WWF rings were hard as hell anyway. True. <laughs> so maybe it wasn't any different. Uh, but like that hard suplex on the outside, you know, like, uh, Sean did like that gourd buster on the steps, just nice, snug looking work. The brawling in the crowd, which we talked about, very ballsy thing for Sean to want to do. They had uh, some good, like, figure four stuff in the ring and also wrapped around the ring post. And it was, like, uh, chaotic in the aisle way when, like, first Brett decks Pat Patterson. And then later on, Sean is, like, hitting referees. It was a chaotic match. Very fun. And honestly, better than I remember it being. Only because I don't remember much of the match. That said, the finish obviously is, you know, what goes down in history. But like the moments right before that happening are are pretty funny to me too, because like when's the last time you saw Bret Hart come
0: off the top rope? Yeah, really. That was not in his forte second rope usually.
1: <laughs> yeah, and he came off the top and Sean brings Hebner into it, Hebner takes a bump, and, and that's the thing I forgot, like, like obviously, you know, going into it, sharpshooter by Shawn Michaels, he gets it on, ring the bell, whatever. But I totally forgot, I totally forgot what led into that. And when Brett's going to the top, I'm like, what the hell is he doing? (laughs) And then it led right into the finish. I was like, I do not remember it being like this at all. But, uh, you know, I was, I was laughing to myself as I was watching that. Just, just seeing Bret Hart come off the top robe is hilarious yeah. to me.
0: Now, to those, for those who don't know what happened, which is probably limited to a guest in your car listening to this podcast who really doesn't listen to wrestling. What they did, they couldn't come up with a finish for this match or Bret was being, you know, they couldn't come up with an agreement for this match. They decided. Okay, they agreed. We're going to go to a double countout. But what actually happened is Shawn Michaels put Bret Hart in Bret Hart's signature hold, which was known as the Sharpshooter, and the referee starts flailing his arms around. And Vince McMahon says, "Ring the bell," and the bell rings, and that's it. And Shawn Michaels is the new WWF champion. That is known as a screw job, Bret. Did not agree to that finish, but it's the finish that he got. I, I said we weren't going to dwell on this, but we certainly have to touch on it. ML, my take on this was that it was absolutely not a work. And I will explain why I get that wrestling is a strange business. And especially in 1997, you just couldn't take anything at face value, right? I can see maybe a year later, maybe even five years later, people thinking, well, maybe it's a work. But it's been 25 years now. And by now, someone would have broken the news. It's human nature. I know something you don't. And I'm going to tell you about it. I do it on this podcast. Jim Cornette since he got his podcast, has been saying that, you know, no, it wasn't a work, and I was the one who suggested the finish to Vince McMahon. Jim Cornette, you know, whether you agree with him on everything, whether you like him, one thing Jim Cornette isn't is he is a liar. He's not going to go around 25 years later saying that, yeah, this is a work. You know, it just it wasn't a work. That's not going to happen. Also, the other reason I don't think it was a work, biggest reason is Brett coming. If I were Brett Hart's agent, I've said this on the show before. Right after this match, I'm like, okay, Brett, you're going to do your three years in WCW and then you're coming back here because this is where the money is. And Brett refused to have anything to do with the WWF for 12 years. He signed a, an extension with WCW. I mean, it was he didn't want to go where the money was. You know, there's no way in the world I think this is a work. Emil, what are your thoughts on that subject?
1: Uh it's, it's that that was real life. You know what we saw was uh, as close to uh, real life as you could possibly get. I think at that yeah. point in time, I don't think like there's there's too many things. There's too many moving parts. For this to be considered a work and and it all goes back. Like I feel like Brett was loyal to WWF and even, even if something happened and he did, he did have to go to WCW for other reasons, you know, like I feel like he would have been very open to come back to WWF. I feel like the only thing that could have Broken Brett's, you know, feeling like that is if his trust in that company is broken and they broke his trust. Yeah, they did. And, and you know, I, I know I know people who are very strong in their convictions that way. Like once once you break somebody's trust, you're not going to get it back. For a very like if you do, it's going to be a very long time. And uh, Brett is absolutely one of those guys. Hell, you can, you can hear about it whenever he talks about Goldberg to this day. And, you know, I'm not saying that to like rip on bread or anything because he's very, he's very justified to have those opinions that he does about the Montreal situation, about Bill Goldberg. You know, he's, he's very justified to feel however he wants to feel about all of those things. But I feel like if, if they were able to come to an agreement to, have this figured out to hash it out with the championship to get it on Sean or to have Brett drop it to somebody else and then get it to Sean whatever I feel like if they if if they were able to mediate that whole process that Brett even if there was so many hard feelings after leaving he would have come back but something like this you can't do to somebody like Brett and have it be okay
0: yeah i mean if if it were a work brett would have just laughed it off and he would have returned after that contract and yeah. you know he he did not just laugh it off and that's why i believe you know to this day there's there's no way it was a work emil i want to thank you for being on the show i i know you're you're very busy with your gcw commitments and thank you for taking the time i thought you did a great job
1: uh thank you so much thank you for having me uh i was really delighted. Uh, when your message came into my uh, DMs on Twitter, because, you know, like I said, uh, in my formative years, you know, one of the first websites that I found myself on when I was on the Internet in 96, 97 was your website. Like, I would uh, look at that all the time. And like, that's really how I kind of learned my wrestling history, because it was all. In one, like, list sort of format, and I would be able to read from, you know, these two, three months in WWF from this listing, and then, okay, what's the next two, three months looking like from the next listing on the tape? And, you know, I was able to piece things together through that. So being able to, uh, actually talk to you about, a a very historic wrestling show was, uh, was a really fun, it's a really fun experience for me, and, uh, Thank you so much for having me. I, I'd be down to do it anytime.
0: Well, thank you, Emily. And I, you know what? I genuinely appreciate and take pride in what you said. Now, I'm going to end this podcast. Well, before I thank everybody else, I'm gonna, I want to read what was in the Observer about the Bret Hart uh, Shawn Michaels fiasco. It will go down in history as the single most famous finish of a pro wrestling match in the modern era 20 or 30 years from now here we are 25 more than any famous wrestler jumping promotions more than any prominent death and more than any record setting house this will be remembered vividly by all who watched it live and remembered it as legendary from all of those who hear about it later through the magic of videotape the last minute of this match will live forever and be replayed literally millions of times by tens of thousands of people all looking for the most minute pieces of detail to this strange puzzle that's what dave wrote as soon as it happened i want to thank everyone for listening we'll be back next week with another stick to wrestling once again i want to thank nlj for being on the show and being the guest I want to thank Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network for giving me this forum. I want to thank Lou Kippelman for all of the great work he does producing this show. And this has been a production. Oh, one last thing. This is the last show before Thanksgiving. This comes out the Friday before Thanksgiving. Everyone have a safe and happy Thanksgiving. This has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Go Vols. This concludes our podcast day.